FinTech Hunting is hosted by Michael Hammett, JD, CMT, keynote speaker, author, and founder and president of Next Level Advisors. Join Michael as he seeks out tech visionaries, leading lenders, trailblazing executives, and other financial influencers to bring you actionable insights and lead generation tactics, all centered around industry greatness and success. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to FinTech Hunting. I could not be more excited and fired up for our next guest. This is a, a woman who has broken the glass ceiling. She's had incredible success throughout her entire career in the mortgage industry. She's a podcaster, a leading author. Uh, she's invited to, to speak nationally all around the country for her mortgage expertise. She's a social media rock star. And most importantly, I'd like to consider her a dear friend. Christine Beckwith, welcome to FinTech Hunting. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. I'm coming in with bells on if you just heard all that dinging. That's me like shutting down my email and the world from interrupting us while we're trying to do this um, interview. So thank you. No more timing. It's all gone. We have quiet now. I'm so glad to be here. I've seen what the show has been doing, um, all the people that's been on. You know, watching you has been an inspiration. I'm just going to turn it right back at you for a minute and tell you. I love your videos. I watch them. You've done an incredible job of monologuing this past year um, and putting out some really rich video content. And I'm I'm one of those like fanatical learners. And so I think even at my age, I I'm a geek, you know. So forgive me if I just described you and now you realize you're a geek. But um, you know, not you personally, but everybody listening. Um, you know, if I go to a conference and I'm speaking at 11, you're going to find me in a chair in the audience from eight in the morning till five at night with my notebook, you know, like that. Absolutely. Well, and I think it's that that passion and that drive for lifelong learning. And then most importantly, and what we'll talk about in a few minutes is I see it through you of that passion of then it's now sharing. It's not just about uh, acquiring that knowledge and having it all to ourselves. It's how can we share? How can we bring and lift up other people on this incredible journey we've on? So, Christine, if somebody on this podcast has not heard you, I'm shocked. But can you spend a couple of minutes just telling them about your incredible background, all of your experience in the mortgage industry, and then we'll get into what you're doing now that is so exciting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm going to give you the cliff note version because trust me, nobody has the time for my resume. Um, and that isn't me like self-stroking. That's me saying I'm old. <laughs> um, you know, the, the long and short of it is that I came up through originations. I went to college for sports medicine, um, was an understudy to a female originator, caught the bug, um, went into originations, found out I was decent at it. I, I was purchase facing back then. Um, you know, really went out and had to do homegrown um, lead generation. And um, so I, I think that was valuable. It was a hard way to start. Um, there wasn't a lot of lead or telephony platforms in, in the day. Um, mm -hmm. It truly was a, a hand to mouth type uh, system. And so you were, you know, kind of had to learn how to do, you know, relationship building the raw way. Had a lot of doors slammed in my face. Um, <laughs> you know, and finally kind of caught my groove. And then, you know, once that started, I learned the tactics of scaling through providing, you know, really good service um, and building and fanning the flames of the small fire I started. And 
you know, I capitalized in different ways back then. I, I you know, went to real estate board meetings and, and such. And before I knew it, I was being offered a management job, probably wrongfully by a branch manager, uh, by a company that saw that I was doing incredible volume. Um, and they thought, well, you know, hell, let's give her a job in central Massachusetts and she can manage guys. I had never recruited. I had never managed anyone. I was 27 years old. Um, but I was, I loved the idea of being a manager. So I accepted it. And then I went and they gave me my whole office in Worcester, um, which is a big city in Massachusetts. And I was like in prime real estate. I had this office with like 10, you know, full offices empty and me. And, um, and then I went to work, you know, again, learning new things and filling those offices. And before long, I had 10 other LOs there and um, I was originating. And we uh, were purchased by this big company, H&R Block, who wanted to do mortgages, who bought the company I was at to fill the New England void. And we joined about 28 branches. And um, we ended up uh, being one of the top five branches out of 210 branches as the company would grow. And that made way for me to get a district management promotion in New England, where I had 150 LOs. And I did that for a while um, and climbed, that district climbed through 14 major market districts to be number one. And we would then, you know, get the promotion or I would for regional, which included Chicago and Atlanta for me um, and Ohio, Indianapolis um, and uh, Cleveland. And then um, I did well with that. And I became a senior vice president of the whole darn thing. It was 900 LOs. Um, the 210 branch managers, 14 district managers, six regionals. And then I had to make a decision about whether we stayed open or closed because we were publicly traded in 2006. And I was the kind of, you know, in the room with the shot callers on that decision. And because we were publicly traded and H&R Block could not withstand, you know, shareholder loss, we right. made the decision, yeah, to close. So that was a hard gig. I spent six months going around the road saying, you know, helping people build their resumes. And then I took a couple months off because it really knocked the wind out of my sails like everybody. And then I got, um, I took a boutique job with 52 LOs in Boston owned by a non mortgage broker guy. He was an IT guy moving his family to the West coast. He wanted someone that knew what they were doing. He hired me, was paying me really well. And within 60 days, I had a call from this dude in Jersey that said, Hey, I want to build a national mortgage company. Um, you know, been watching you and think you'd be really good at it. A buddy of mine that had worked with me in the past at HR Block was partners with Joe Penabianco, and they had a little company in New Jersey called Village Home Mortgage, and what we now know as Animac Home Mortgage. And um, I said, Yeah, let's talk. And we had dinner. And the first thing that I did was broker the sale um, between the owner and Joe. And, um, you know, apparently passed the test, became, you know, one of Village Home Mortgage's branches of, we had three branches, the whole company had three branches, so about 90 LOs. And the next 12 years was my journey, my last 12 years in the mortgage industry. And um, I served a role titled as National Vice President of Sales and Real Estate. And my job was to bring, um, help the loan officers go from a refi-based telephony inbound telemarketing model into the purchase field again. So a throwback to what I had done. 
And um, we had made that same flip with H&R Block Mortgage. We were a refi shop that got flipped to purchase and back. So I've had that model flip on me in 30 years a couple times. Um, and the rest is history. You know, when I uh, I said to Joe uh, and Ryan, QB, I'll give you five years. And I gave them 12. Um, at about the 10-year mark, I said, you know, I really want to be a coaching company. I had picked the the name uh, 2020 Vision for Success Coaching in 2006. I actually had a website that was named 2020 Vision for Success Coaching. It is still live. It's never not been live since 2006. So the whole time that I was in the mortgage industry, what I was doing over there is I was beginning to write my books and I was beginning to use it as a vetting for me to speak publicly. And I would pretty much had a private career most of the years I was in there from social media. I really was not big on social media. Um, until 2000, late 2016, and only because I challenged a bunch of young gun originators uh, at a rally where I said, we all need to get into social media, and I'll use myself as the example. And I publicly promised them that I would get 10,000 followers in a year. At that moment when I made that promise in September of 2016, I had 500 Facebook friends, no Instagram, no Twitter, no Facebook business page, um, I had about 1,100 LinkedIn followers that were old and crusty, not the people, the, the connections. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, anyways, here I am coaching, you know, now we're, we're, we're going on our, you know, officially our second year, but it's really our third year because Annie Mac was kind enough to let me build this for one year while I was still offboarding. Okay. So I had a full like 16 month uh down process as an executive you're kind of it's not the mafia you can get out but it's very hard to um leave a senior role and you don't want it to disrupt the culture you know and all the momentum that you've created and, and everything that you've built so you have an amazing background and i think one of the things that's so important when we talk about coaching you know everybody needs a coach i don't care if you're the best professional golfer, you have a coach. And if you're in professional football, professional sports, and I think business, sometimes people shy away from, hey, I've arrived or I've learned all of this on my own and I don't need a coach. And it's a huge mistake a lot of people make. But what I love about your coaching is the fact that you've done all of this. This isn't theory. This isn't something you read in a book and now you're trying to teach people. Yeah. This is something you've lived each and every day. Tell me a little bit more why you're so passionate about coaching. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you bring that topic up, kind of what you're talking about is authenticity in coaching. And listen, we all, you know, I believe that all of us have a coach in us as human beings. Um, I think that some people, you know, use it to coach their kids' sports. I think some people use it uh, to volunteer at their local churches. I think some people become the teacher parent, um, you know, that's involved at the, our kids' school. And some of us in our businesses migrate towards that. And I found myself over the years in leadership really enjoying when we would teach. Um, I, I took a lot from it. You know, I think the, the emotional, raw, vulnerable story is something I'm happy to share. It's now public in my last book that I wrote. Um, but it really is at the core of my passion. And I get asked this a lot. And I've had to really figure out my answer, FYI. I, um, you know, when I built the website in 2006, I got asked what my um, philosophy, life's philosophy was. And I thought, wow, 
It took me like nine months to write it, by the way. It's a paragraph long. And I promise you, if you ever have to do this, it's the hardest thing to define your life's philosophy. And it's still the same as it was in 2006. I did a really good job, I guess, thinking about this. But basically, I said that education is should be an emotional awakening. If you do education right, you should be emotionally awoken in learning things where there's an epiphany that occurs because what sticks to us in education is that. And so a lot of guys and girls get this wrong. A lot of companies will hire outside trainers that have a training company. And I know why, because, you know, first of all, it takes a lot to be an educator. You have to have systems and you have to have, you know, you have to have the product and the content, but you have to have good delivery. And, you know, there are companies out there that they take the best talking dude in the company and they prop him up as the mm -hmm. trainer. And we know that's great for one class, but that's almost like, okay, he shared his best practices. Now what? To have an ongoing, sustainable educational platform as a, as a company is a trick. And I have to say, I did a really good job of helping the companies I was with for the 24 years with Block and with Animac to develop those departments and then also teach. We used our pool of people that had uh, results. And so I said, this is the connection, is that when you sit in an audience with a guy that's doing it, you need to be able to do that. So the tie back to education for me and the passion part, when I was um, a young girl, I lived in a really affluent town and um, we lived on like the last road in this town. And it's the, it's the Valley of the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And it's a wealthy, wealthy lake town where a lot of out of town residents live and the average home on the lake is over a million dollars but we weren't that family my mom and dad god bless them they're you know the greatest parents ever we were rich in every measurable way we went to church we sat for dinner they you know taught us things but they were teenage pregnancy and they were doing the best that they could but we were on this you know out of town outskirts um back road that probably should have been in the town next door and it was a hard <laughs> Kind of existence for us kids. There were eight of us on this street that rode the bus to school. And um, anyways, we had great mentors. I had a principal that, you know, would come. I wanted to throw my hat in the ring to become a um, the president of my student council in grade school. And um, I voiced it to a teacher, but then said, you know, that I didn't think I was popular enough and I had insecurities and stuff. But she must have mentioned the principal and he like came to have a meeting with me <clears throat> and he like brought me in his office. I remember just being so little. I was sitting in the chair. My feet didn't even touch the ground, you know, and he was telling me little Christine, you know, that I could be anything I put my mind to. And he wanted to help me and he wanted to tell me what I needed to do. Anyways, I would win that little election. I gathered all my friends and I spent all my recesses like campaigning. We had posters and nobody was more in shock than I was that that happened. And it was life-changing for me. It really changed my eyesight, not only on what one human being can do for another when they encourage, but also um, the inner belief systems that tell us we can't do something when we can. And so there was a couple, there was many lessons. That's, that story is written in the front part of my book, Wise Eyes, um, which I'm really proud won the American Book Festival Award in 2018. And you know, so 
being vulnerable has helped me educate because I would go on to get into eighth grade and go to high school and you had to pick whether you were going to go into college or business ed and my mom and dad wanted me to pick business ed my mom had said this is going to sound horrible and it's not against my mom it's just very realistic and she said you got to learn how to type and do skills so you can be like a secretary start out like as a secretary and i remember just thinking like i want to be a secretary like <laughs> like even in eighth grade i didn't want to be a secretary i was like i want to be like you know something big i don't know that i knew what i wanted to be i just knew i didn't want to be that and so i forged my mom and dad's signature to go into the college classes now this is a really funny story but we would come off the school bus at the end of the semester me and my sisters i'm the middle child of two sisters two sibling um girls and my older sister always struggled in grades and if she's listening right now i'm sorry but you know it's true and um she would she would come off the the, the bus and we had a little bit of a walk to our house and she had like no f's so she was so happy like she, I won't say what her report card was, but there were no Fs on it. So that was like cause for celebration. I had straight A's, but I knew the minute I handed it in, my parents were going to see that I had like, you know, that I had like, you know, college courses and all these college prep courses. And I was scared to death to hand it in with a straight A report card. And I got grounded and she got like an ice cream. Like I, this is how it went in our house. And I was just like, you know, what is the lesson here? You know, my parents knew, well, I got grounded. Let's break it down for lying. And she got rewarded for doing her best. Um, the principal, the same principal that had talked me into doing the campaign, by the way, had been the principal of the grade school. When I went up to seventh grade, it was just a coincidence. He actually took a superintendent role at the high school, grade, middle school, uh, high school. So he kind of traveled my whole life kind of in my circle, but I went into school and I went in to talk to him and I said, my mom, I came back in, you know, walk of shame with the, the new papers to go into, to be transferred into business prep. And he said, why are you doing that? And I said, well, my mom and dad know they don't have money for college and they just really want me to have practical skills. And he said, I'll call your mother. And I'm thinking, you don't know my mom. Like I was scared for that. <laughs> And so he did though, and she came in and she, they sat and he talked her into like, she could get grants and they were like, we just don't want her to be disappointed. We don't want her. So fast forward, he put guidance counselors on me. I would do, you know, I was working part-time jobs through high school. I would do extracurricular. And I, you know, he told me, you got to maintain like a, an excellent grade point average for scholarships. Right. And so I did, and we went all the way to scholarship night and you know my parents are getting ready and the speech in the car from my dad was like we are so proud of you you've worked really hard we've seen you bust your butt and um you're a winner to us no matter what and i'm in the back seat and i was like that sounds like a concession speech like i told my mom and dad i'm like i think you two i said this are the two that are going to be surprised tonight like i'm walking in there with all the hope in the world i've done everything i needed to do and they had me apply for every single scholarship. So I was working weekends at a Century 21 as a secretary, ironically. And I filled out all kinds of scholarships. And they said, fill out the ones you don't even fit the criteria for. So there was one that was like daughter of the, a Marine. And my father was not a Marine. But I applied for it. And I applied for different ones that I didn't qualify and ones I did qualify for. Anyways, 
that night they would give away 34 scholarships. There are 88 students in my class. I received 17 of those scholarships. See, I, was like, I was like the <laughs> I was like the Rudy story of my class because what happened was those students knew I had killed myself. And what happened was instead of, you know, through the years, they were driving Alfa Romeos for Christ's sakes. They had butlers, a lot of them. One of the girls' father was the president of Bell Atlantic Phone back when Bell Atlantic landline phone was around. And she had two au pairs that lived in her house. I spent the night at her house for a sleepover and had my hair washed in a claw tub by an unknown woman that would break raw eggs in my hair. I mean, a lifestyle that you don't even, you can't even imagine. Um, funny story is that girl's father and my dad still have coffee today. Um, so, you know what, this is what, I, this is what I tell you. Why do I educate? Why do I give scholarships away? Why did I create a foundation and I've been giving away scholarships? I give scholarships to 2020 um, Vision for Success. We just named a student, we actually have three uh, students that are between 18 and 21 years old. One kid's a homeless kid that is living in the basement of some friends that can't go to college, but he's going to take the, all our courses. And um, he has a really sharp eye and he wants to make something of himself. So my life is dedicated. This is my passion. It never gets old. Um, I have tiring days, yes, physically. Um, but I really believe when you align yourself with your passion, you know, I'm nobody different than anybody else, but my life has shaped me. And I was making big bank at Animac in that role. And to leave that to build a company where I wouldn't make as much initially was a pretty, you know, sobering prospect for me. And it really meant that I had arrived at a place where I understood that my abundance comes from giving and not from a paycheck necessarily. I, I do make money. I don't want to make you feel bad, but no, but I think that's part of how we connect. It was that desire to give back, that desire to add value to others, that it wasn't just about the paycheck. I was CEO of Mortgage Cadence when I left and then formed Next Level Advisors. And again, is that scary and is it frightening when you walk away from that? But the ability to, to work with people like yourself, the ability to add value to other individuals around us is very, very powerful. I had the opportunity to teach a class uh, this past weekend at a local high school for students that were looking for life skills. And, and my specific session was on finding jobs and professional networking. And being able to talk to those students and give back, and they all have different career tracks. Some's gonna to go to a four-year college and they know exactly what they wanna do and their career's mapped out. Others are thinking, I'm gonna do a skilled trade. Uh, is this presentation even gonna help me? And yes, because we're dedicated to giving back to those individuals and how can we lift somebody up? Because we've had so many different opportunities and people who have helped us. And it was that superintendent that took an interest in you kind of gave you that hand up and you ran with it. Hopefully the two of us can still do that with a lot of people that we interact yeah. with today. Yeah. So you had mentioned social media a little bit I and you kind of threw up. I love our, that. I love that story about you going to the school. So. Well, thank you. You had mentioned social media and kind of throwing out that challenge. I still run into so many executives, especially in the mortgage space, a lot of technology providers that the executives are scared to get on social media. 
They don't see that it's worth their time. They don't see how you could genu or get genuine uh, relationships. So tell me a little bit about what you learned through that challenge because you've blown up on social media. Yeah, I mean, when I started, I didn't know what I was doing. And I just learned to um, actually uh, search for the free video. So if you go into any search engine on any social media and you write the word free training videos, every one of them, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, they're going to offer you up classes that you can just grab videos of and watch. And that's really where I began. I searched um, LinkedIn for some algorithm articles and found a bunch um, that were really big and some staggering statistics. And I'm a stats girl, like I, I'm a numbers girl. So like a big part of what I did for the years that I was a senior vice president was analytics, you know, run rates and uh, industry averages and attrition rates and, you know, all, everything. We were always looking at, sorry, I'm breaking into a seltzer, always looking at, um, you know, different things. And so anyways, I could see the sheer opportunity on LinkedIn to start was kind of like a Super Bowl commercial level when you posted, if you got the algorithms right, if you got active three to five times a week, it changed the algorithms. Um, you know, your posts go into kind of this room where just your people you know are in the room, but if they get a lot of activity, then LinkedIn opens the door and lets the public look as well that isn't connected to you. And the, and within that first hour, your, your post is either dying or it's growing. Um, if it's growing, the door is being opened by LinkedIn every little inch. I had a post that got 57,000 views. And it was just this heartfelt post a year after I left Annie Mac at 10 o'clock at night that was literally written from bed. And I was about to go the next day back to Annie Mac a year later. And I wrote just an unscripted from my heart. like, And it was very wordy too, which is funny because I always thought like people don't read <laughs> So I don't know, it broke what I even thought in my head, but I just wrote an authentic, um, you know, I'm coming back a year later to step on the stage that I said goodbye on. And I think about where I was a year ago and how scared I was and how many unknowns there were. And that step by blind step, I would deflate my own fear out of action and out of heart and passion and an inner belief that I was going to be able to do something. So, you know, the long and short of it is that um, I taught myself these things. And then as I grew and the company grew, um, I would have to front load my content. So I'm a prolific writer. So, you know, I probably need medicine. Let's just put this out there uh, <laughs> for, for like mania. Um, and so I had to get over my fears of people hating me because I got a lot of negative feedback when I started. When I left the group of guys I was with and they were not social media posting and I began to post, I got a lot of very loud feedback. Like, what are you doing? It seems self-stroking. Like, you know, I even had friends be like, oh my God, your page is like a, like, look at me page. And I had to really sit on that because I was like, God, I don't want to be that guy, you know? Um, but I did understand that to be a coach to people that don't know me, that have not worked with me, that don't know the story I just shared, that I've got to tell a story so my voice can be heard. People have to get to know me and my heart. If they can, if I can break down those barriers somehow from a distance across the nation by doing storytelling social media, if I can share quotes that matter to me. Yes, if it turns people off and they go in the other direction, they're not my guy, I've learned. They're not my guy. 
Exactly. And so, right? So then I learned to take what would happen is the people that are my guys are really into it. So there's like 10 degrees of separation. You have the guy you turn off and then you have the guy that's like, I want into that community, into that culture, into that voice. So I guess you've got to get thick in your skin, get active. Um, I got to organize today. We have a team of three people on my social media team here at 2020. I still write my whole contact, uh, my all my copy, um, and I front load it onto a Google uh, Drive where a, a person on my team takes it, grammatically checks it. If you see something grammatically incorrect, I wrote it and posted it myself. If it's <laughs> if if it sounds right and is grammatically correct, I still wrote it. But it went through the engine of my social media department that made it look pretty and is physically posting for me. So I still do all the messages, likes, shares, comments. I respond to all my in-mail myself. Um, but And I do still post things myself. But I have four posts a day that are being done by my team. And so right now, we have a schedule that's through April 1st. So what's happening is each week, I have to spend an hour doing at least six posts, creating six posts for April that get front loaded into this Google so that my team has the front time to get ready because they're creating this posting schedule. And by the last week of March, they will have April and May set. So we're always 60 days ahead. Well, and I love how you talked about, you know, being authentic is critical. And yes, there's going to be critics out there, you know. I remember about, you know, it was a year ago at the Housing Wire Engage conference and there's people are up on stage and you were one of the people on stage talking about how you got to put yourself out there. Before that, I don't think I'd ever even taken a selfie. Yeah. And that first video is awkward. And I've always been a person of we do a lot of strategy and coaching behind the scenes. I didn't need to be the, the front person. But you're right. If you don't tell your story, if you can't share your passion and your story out there, then how's anyone going to ever interact with it? And we if you repel, yes. And if you repel a few people, then they're probably not a good fit for you, anyways. That's right. So, so what? Move on to the next one. It's the same as I say this. It's the same. And here's the other tips I'll tell you: is that you know you go to school, but you're not friends with all the people in your class. You have your people, and so you know social media is no different on a different scale, of course. So you got to find your people. Gary Vaynerchuk will tell you, um, and I've had the pleasure of getting close to Gary in the last year at his age in 2021. And I spoke with him again at the Blasio on October 12th um, at the AIM convention. And, you know, his whole deal is authenticity, of course. But he says the mistake that professionals make is that we think our social media is supposed to make everybody reading it happy. And that's not true. He goes, the other mistake we made is we think we should be selling our product on there. And while that's true, he's the believer that if you post the meme about the gym because you're a gym person, but you're a credit repair guy, and then you write in your copy like, you know, going to the gym has made me stronger and I can help you make your credit repair, your credit report stronger as well. I know a thing about making things stronger. And you connect something you like that's authentic to you, that draws your followers to you, but then you solve to the problem of the client you have in the way that you write the copy with a clear call to action, call me today, email me today, you know, visit our website, book a free consultation, you know, whatever this, we call it the CTA, call to action, whatever it is, 
he said people forget all those things they they put the meme up and then they don't tell you how to get a hold of them and someone looks at it and says oh i like that well you got to turn that i love that like that thing into what is it who is this guy what does he do well if your copy's clear if you look at everything i do if i put up a meme you're also going to see my website and my call to action yep if i and so what is that saying it's just saying, if you like me, here's how you connect with me without me saying it. Um, and it's just very clear. And our conversion for social media is is big. You know, I'm not afraid to tell you the first year we went live as a coaching company, we sold way into the six figures off social media leads. We spent nothing on social media other than even our videographies kind of homegrown, what we did. I mean, very little, you know, and so you know, to create that kind of, we, we have so many leads coming in from our website and, and our seven social medias that I have a team of 13 salespeople that are getting those leads round robin. They're making an initial contact, welcoming them for their inquiry. They're giving them a video to watch. They first are asking them questions about what they want to learn. And then we have a series of videos. That's me speaking directly to them because there's only so much of me to go around saying i'm so glad that you're asking about coaching let me talk to you and it could be like a one-on-one -on -one. it's so we've made a library of these that are so precision and they're just doling it out and so when people get past the video and they want more they get put into my schedule for a one-on-one -on -one consultation so we can decide where they fit or whatever but you've got to create if you don't think social media is a sales funnel let me tell you something um my ROI is through the roof. I'm not just a believer. I am an actual living example of a person that had nothing three years ago and today has, you know, regular income coming in from that source. So anyways, you heard it here first, folks. Excellent <laughs> tips. Thank you. One other thing, we, we talked about housing wire, and I know you just got back recently from uh, emceeing the housing wire uh, talent conference first, whenever. What are some trends you're seeing in the mortgage industry? What are some of the takeaways that you got from that show? It was such an awesome show. I, I have to tell you, I felt honored, you know, uh, to get that role and to be backstage with so many incredible speakers. You know, a few top takeaways are this. First of all, I got to see Shant Bonagian. So I hope he's listening. He's the number one LO in the country. He did $914 million as a single originator last year. Now, here's an interesting fact. Shant actually works in the building where my branch in Waltham sits. So for the years that I was ending any Mac, my own origination branch uh, was in Waltham, Massachusetts. He worked for Guaranteed Rate. And we would run into each other 10 years ago in the hallway. He was not the number one LO in the country back then. He would tell you that in the first, he's only been in the business 11 years. So listen up. He, so they walked him on stage at Housing Wire. It was like we were seeing a unicorn at the circus. Like we were like, everybody in the audience was just like, you know, got out your, I mean, I was one of those people. Like I was standing on the side of the stage and he and I know each other, took a selfie together. Um, and he just, he was just like blown away, you know, I was just blown away, I mean, um, by listening to him. And you could have heard a pin drop when he was talking. So he said $30 million was harder for him than 914. But here's what he said. So executives, senior leaders, and everybody in a power position in an organization that is managing salespeople, listen up right now. He said that what made him able to scale to that level so fast 
was that guaranteed rate was willing to put people on his team to get him to the next level. So instead of, you know, you're that guy doing 15 million and you're capped out working 60 hours a week and you're like, I can't get to 30 million because I need an LOA, I need a loan assistant. Um, a lot of companies will say, okay, we'll get to 25 cat, 25 million, and I'll give you one. So in other words, they want the capital coming in to pay for the person they're hiring. They've got it backwards. He's saying those companies that will do like, I'll invest the money because I know that you, it'll help you get there. And then you'll get the ROI from it. So you might have to carry somebody a couple months worth of salary, but you've got to put some faith in originators ability that with that assistance, they're going to lift. And so I'm breaking it down to you because I was sitting there paying attention because, you know, we teach scaling over here. I've done a, I feel like a good job scaling up, you know, constantly assessing how to get to the next level. And so I would tell you this, if you're a loan originator right now and you're trying to get to the next level, your next best sales gig is to get in with your senior manager or your higher up and sit and sell that person on the idea that you will get to that volume if they give you an assistant. And those of you that close that deal are going to be on the same trail that Sean Bonagian is on. Um, and so that was incredible. The other part of Housing Wire to end, it was the battle for talent, um, which was between uh, Tom Middleton, um, Phil Shoemaker, no, Phil um, Treadwell, sorry, Phil, and um, Anthony Casa. And so what was funny is they gave them each 10 minutes stage time, even though they were a single panel, and they got to go out there and like talk about what their channels look like. Um, and um, it was really interesting to listen. I mean, it's competitive this year. Another panel that was amazing um, had had the seniors at uh, housing, I'm sorry, guaranteed rate, movement mortgage, and loan depot. Um, Brian Covey, um, forgetting everybody's names, but they they were they were funny because they were like, you know, they're always stepping on each other's toes recruiting. And one guy was talking about this young kid that he put his time into that nobody else wanted to hire. And then he came in and he went from like 26 to 90 million in three years and everyone's trying to recruit him. And he said, these two guys have called my guy and everybody in the audience laughed and they were like, yeah, they both went, yeah, yeah, I have, you know? So anyways, I think that the theme I would tell everybody is this, if you can afford to get to a local convention or fly to one that's happening, you know, please do it. There is always, and even this, the networking, the peripheral networking. You know, I was able to see Toby Potter at Global Integrity. I was able to have dinner with Chris Griffith, the uh, vetted VA from uh, AIM. I was able to have dinner with Alvin Shaw, the president of First Option. So, you know, you want to take all that time you have and find ways to connect to really great people. They're out there on the circuit and it's um, it's powerful. It's very powerful. Well, and they're willing to share. And I think whether you use social media to make the initial connection and then you're at a conference and you meet in person, it's all about developing those relationships. Because what I have found is the people that are really accomplishing great things in the mortgage industry, most of them generally are willing to share and give back and help yeah. lift up other people. And you couldn't be a better example of that. Christine, I could sit here and talk to with hours of you. I know our time is really winding down. Is there anything else you want to leave our audience today? You've shared so many great insights and personal stories. I just want to end. And more importantly, how can they get a hold of you if they want to get a hold of you and find out more about the incredible things you're doing with coaching? 
Yeah, I would say my last word to them will be this. There is no perfect life in our business. And so if you're waking up in the morning and you feel like you don't have the energy to attack the day because this is a tough gig and a tough business, take the time for self-care, number one. Many people in our business will end up depressed or run down or making sacrifices in the way of their marriages or family time, not being present in their kids' lives. And so, you know, as much as I rah-rah and fan the flames of excellence, I'm a sports-minded individual and I want to charge the field, I also understand in the peripheral is the reason I'm at the field. And so don't forget that part, please. Um, remember, that's why you went to work in the first place. Sometimes it's hard to shut down. I do put boundaries up. That's the best, best tip I can give you there. If you want to learn more about it, you can visit my website at www.visionyoursuccess.net. And if you want to talk to us live, you just email us at info at visionyoursuccess.net, and we'll happily speak with you about any of your coaching needs. So thank you so much for having me. Christine, thank you so much. You are always welcome back to share your incredible insights. Yay. This conference will now be recorded. FinTech Hunting is brought to you by Next Level Advisors. Next Level Advisors, where businesses come to grow.